there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On December 1st, 1948, a man's body was found on Somerton Beach in the suburb of Adelaide, South Australia. The investigation into his death would go down in history as one of the most enduring murder mysteries of all time. Exhaustive attempts to identify the corpse proved fruitless. The means of his death remained a mystery. And when he was eventually buried, his headstone was inscribed with the eternal epitaph, The Unknown Man. In his pocket was a slip of paper with the words, Tamam Shud, the Persian phrase for, it is ended. It was believed to have been torn from a copy of Omar Khayyam's The Rubaiyat. The police traced the paper to the copy it was pulled from. Finding the book was a major breakthrough, but what was written on the back cover turned out to be the real find, a phone number and a series of random capital letters. To whom did the phone number belong? What did the baffling letter code mean? Was the mystery of the unknown man about to be solved at long last? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, on Twitter, at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Last week, we examined the Adelaide Police Department's attempts to identify the unknown man and determine the cause of death. The police were unsuccessful on both counts. This week, we'll continue to investigate the mystery of the unknown man. 
As new clues surfaced, new theories about his identity sprung up, some credible, some unconventional, and some extraordinary. The main speculations dealt with a local nurse, a top-secret atomic testing base, communist spies, and Thomas Jefferson's descendants. After weeks of police trying and failing to identify the unknown man, Detective Sergeant Lean of the Adelaide Criminal Investigation Branch was placed in charge of the case on January 8, 1949. Lean had some solid leads that he hoped could help crack the case. One was the deceased man's suitcase in the cloakroom of the Adelaide Railway Station. But there were no identification tags on the case. Inside, most of the clothing had the name tags removed, except for three articles with the names T. Keen, Keen spelled with an E, and Keen spelled without an E. The name didn't match any known missing persons. Another promising lead was found by Professor John Burton Cleland of the Department of Pathology at the University of Adelaide after giving the unknown man's clothes another thorough search. A piece of paper torn from Omar Khayyam's The Rubaiyat that sported the words Tamam should. The unknown man had it in his pocket when he died. Lean hoped to find the copy of The Rubaiyat from which the paper was torn. If he could accomplish this, he would at least have a definitive place the unknown man had been at one time. Unfortunately, the book was extremely popular, with numerous editions since its first publication in 1859. Finding the exact book that the slip of paper was torn from would take a stroke of incredible luck. On July 23, 1949, eight months after the unknown man's body was found on Somerton Beach, luck knocked on Detective Sergeant Lean's door. Roland Francis, a businessman from the Adelaide suburb of Glenelg, walked into Lean's office and showed him a copy of the Rubaiyat with a portion of the last page torn out. Lean couldn't believe it. After months of dead ends, he finally had a break in the case. Francis explained the circumstances of how he found the book. The week the unknown man was discovered, Francis, his brother-in-law, and his wife had driven to Somerton Beach. Francis remembered seeing his brother-in-law reading a copy of the Rubaiyat. When Francis read that the police were looking for a copy of the Rubaiyat, he called his brother-in-law and asked him about the book. But his brother-in-law said the book wasn't his. He had found the book on the floor of the car, thought it belonged to Francis, and shoved it into the glove box. Francis wanted to keep his identity a secret, fearing the media storm that would follow the discovery of the unknown man's copy of the Rubaiyat. It's a pretty good bet Francis Rowland is a pseudonym the police assigned to him. Lean most likely had the Rubaiyat the Tamam Shud slip of paper came from, but had no idea how it came to be in a car parked near Somerton Beach. Still, the book was the most promising lead Lean had come upon in months. Giving the book a cursory examination, Lean found a telephone number written in pencil on the back cover of the book. Using a magnifying glass, he also noted the faint impression of random capital letters scribbled on the back of the book. Right away, the copy of the Rubaiyat had furnished new leads to follow up on. Forensic testing soon confirmed that the torn slip of paper found on the unknown man came from the specific copy of the Rubaiyat, which was now in police hands. The authenticity of the Rubaiyat established 
the police contacted the postmaster general for the name and address belonging to the phone number found on the back cover. The address was on Mosley Street in the Adelaide suburb of Somerton Park, only a quarter mile away from where the body of the unknown man was found. The police knocked on the door of the house, and Jessica Thompson, a 27-year-old nurse, answered. The police talked to Jessica about the body found on Somerton Beach on December 1st. They informed her of the Tomam Shud slip of paper found in the unknown man's trousers and how the Rubaiyat it belonged to had also been found. They also informed Jessica that her telephone number was written on the back cover of the book. They asked her the million-dollar question, Do you know the identity of the unknown man? Jessica told the police that in 1945, during World War II, she was working at Sydney's North Shore Hospital. While there, she became friendly with an Army lieutenant. His name was Alfred Boxall, and he was an officer with the Army's Water Transport Company. The last time Jessica saw him before he was due to ship out, she gave him a gift, a copy of the Rubaiyat. Jessica was sure he lived in the suburb of Maroubra in New South Wales because he had written to her after the war. The police were confident the case had been solved. Alfred Boxall must be the unknown man. On July 26, 1949, the Adelaide police sent a message to the New South Wales Criminal Investigation Branch inquiring about a missing person by the name of Alfred Boxall. Meanwhile, on the afternoon of July 26th, Detective Sergeant Lean convinced Jessica Thompson to accompany him to the South Australian Museum. In a storeroom was the plaster cast of the unknown man that was made just before he was buried. Lean wanted to establish a positive identification. Jessica was affected upon seeing the plaster cast. Lean commented, quote, she was completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint, end quote. But oddly enough, after such a stunning reaction, Jessica claimed she didn't recognize the bust of the unknown man. She couldn't say if the plaster cast was indeed Alfred Boxall. It should be pointed out that the unknown man was already decomposing when he was embalmed and the plaster cast was made. It was conceivable that the cast was not a good enough representation of the man when he was alive and, in turn, made it hard for Jessica to positively identify him. The logic was plausible, but it didn't explain her strong reaction to the plaster cast. On July 27, 1949, police tracked down Alfred Boxall to 19 Parrer Street in the suburb of Maroubra. Susie Isabel Boxall answered the door and informed the police that her brother was not at home, but at work. This did not bode well for a positive identification of a dead body. The police went to the Randwick bus depot and found Alfred Boxall very much alive. Boxall recalled the police being annoyed. The fact that he was standing there, alive, had upset their apple cart, as he put it. The police questioned him about Jessica Thompson. Boxall confirmed he met a Jessica Thompson during the war. She was introduced to him by the girlfriend of a fellow officer. Boxall confirmed that Jessica did indeed give him a copy of the Rubaiyat. In fact, he still had it. It was at home. The police took Boxall back to his house, where he produced the copy of the Rubaiyat Thompson had given him years prior. Turning to the last page, they found the phrase, 
Tamam Shud intact. On July 27th, the Sydney police sent a radio message to the criminal investigation branch in Adelaide reporting the news that Alfred Boxall was not missing and was alive and well. There's definitely some irony in the fact that the police were disappointed in finding Alfred Boxall alive and not the dead man buried in the Adelaide West Terrace Cemetery. The Adelaide police decided to interview Jessica Thompson again. Considering the reaction she had upon seeing the plaster cast of the unknown man's face, there was reason to believe she knew more than she was letting on. But Jessica continued to claim to have no idea why a dead man would have her phone number scrawled on a book in his possession. This time, however, Jessica told the police she remembered her neighbors telling her on November 30th a man had knocked on her door and was asking for her. The first big break in the investigation had led police to a dead end. Lean was forced to move on to the second clue he had discovered on the back cover of the Rubaiyat, the faint rows of capital letters written in pencil. Five lines of jumbled letters could be seen when the book was examined under an ultraviolet light. The second line had been crossed out. The first three lines were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X over them. At first glance, the random letters seemed to mean absolutely nothing, just some aimless scribbling. But the police quickly had another theory. They wondered if the letters weren't random or aimless at all, that perhaps they had stumbled upon some kind of secret code. Up next, experts try to break the code. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now back to the story. By the fall of 1949, the copy of the Rubaiyat that belonged to the victim had been found. On the back cover was a phone number, which the police hoped would lead them to somebody who could identify the unknown Somerton man at long last. At first, the lead looked promising, the phone number belonging to a nurse who remembered giving a copy of the Rubaiyat to a soldier during the war. But the soldier turned out to be alive, and the nurse claimed she knew nothing more. Attention turned to the second clue on the book. Several lines of capital letters also found on the back cover of the Rubaiyat, the supposed secret code. To understand the significance of this clue, it's necessary to discuss the state of global politics at the time. It was 1949, and the world was starting to feel the grip of the Cold War. During World War II, which had ended just a mere four years earlier, 
the Soviet Union sided with the Allies against Germany. But there was always an undercurrent of distrust and animosity lurking between the Soviets and their supposed comrades in arms. The Cold War was a geopolitical, ideological, and economic rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. The proliferation of nuclear arms during this period created a state of constant paranoia. World War II had displaced thousands of European civilians. After the war, those people were looking to get away from the ruin of the war years. Many of these migrants were encouraged to relocate to Australia. Australia had made it through the war unscathed, but the government believed Australia was a large country with too few people to defend it if trouble threatened their shores. In November of 1946, Arthur Caldwell, the Australian Federal Minister for Immigration, said, quote, The call to all Australians is to realize that without adequate numbers, this wide brown land may not be held in another clash of arms, end quote. The idea was that a larger population would deter the threat of communism and deter an enemy from attacking Australia. This policy led to a massive influx of immigrants to Australia. However, there's no way to screen all the new arrivals thoroughly, meaning communist spies would have had no problem infiltrating the country in those days. Australia's plan to bolster its population in order to discourage the communist danger may have been the very thing that allowed the Soviets to increase their presence in their country. Australia was allied with the United States and Great Britain in stemming the rise of communism around the world. To help with the cause, Australia established a top-secret rocket and atomic testing area in the vast barren deserts of South Australia. The Woomera prohibited area was established by the United Kingdom and Australia in 1947 under the Anglo-Australian Joint Project. Consisting of over 47,000 square miles, it was the largest long-range weapons testing area in the world. This was a place with many secrets. The closest big city to Woomera was Adelaide. Soldiers at the Woomera site were permitted to take their leave in the city. So, if a communist spy was hunting for information, Adelaide was the ideal spot to hang around. Given the mysterious nature of his death, and the fact that we don't even know his name, there's a chance that our unknown man was, in fact, a foreign agent. Detective Sergeant Lean sent the possible code to the Director of Naval Intelligence to decipher its secrets. The police also released the code to the press. A whirlwind of amateur codebreakers across Australia decided to tackle the code. In no time, the code became a full-blown obsession. Numerous people contacted the police, claiming to have solved the inexplicable code. The results ranged from overwrought to absolute nonsense. One Adelaide newspaper, aptly named The News, received a letter from somebody who claimed to have deciphered the code which revealed the initials of the unknown man. He offered to give the police his results for a reasonable reward. Bill Harvey, a cleaner, believed the key to cracking the code was imagination. His solution assumed the key letters of the message had been left out, and by relying on one's imagination to fill in the blanks, the message could be cracked. I imagine the police put little credence in that theory. 
Indeed. But they did look into a Sydney schoolboy's theory that the letters represented numbers. These numbers corresponded to the phone number belonging to the Adelaide branch of the Commonwealth Bank. Out of the mouths of babes. Unfortunately, that bank did not have the same phone number in 1948. Navy intelligence worked on the code for weeks. On August 25, 1949, they sent a message to the Adelaide police saying that, in their opinion, the code was unbreakable. An excerpt of the Navy's reply stated, quote, There is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis, but the indications, together with the acceptance of the above breaks in sense, indicate, in so far as can be seen, that the letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code, end quote. The police received a call from someone who was absolutely sure the unknown man was a Russian man named Kilimant Voroshilov. The man believed Voroshilov was in Australia on a secret espionage mission. The police had to follow up on every lead. They made a quick check and discovered Voroshilov was alive and living in Moscow. So much for one of Stalin's right-hand men being a spy. But let's take a moment to consider the idea that the unknown man was a spy. The undisputed facts of the case are as follows. The deceased was found dead on the beach, with no wallet, no money, and no identification. His fingerprints weren't on file anywhere in Australia, the U.S., or Europe. His suitcase had no identification tags, and the majority of his clothes had the name tags removed. The mysterious slip of paper with the words Tamam Shud found in his clothes led the police to a copy of the Rubaiyat. A phone number on the back cover led to a nurse who seemed to know more than she's letting on. And a secret code that nobody, including naval intelligence, could crack. Not to mention Woomera, a foremost weapons testing area of the time, was situated very close to Adelaide, a city where soldiers from the base frequented on leave. A spy would naturally be drawn to such a place where secrets might be acquired. Though the preponderance of evidence points to the conclusion that the unknown man was some sort of clandestine spy, the fact is nothing the police ever discovered supported such a theory. The criminal investigation branch of the Adelaide police had followed every lead examined every clue, hunted down evidence, but in the end, were unable to positively identify the unknown man. The investigation was once again relegated to the realm of a cold case. If the unknown man was a spy, a man whose profession it was to avoid detection, then he was frustratingly good at his job. With the suspected code destined to remain uncracked, the police were once again at a dead end. For decades, it seemed that the unknown man's identity would remain forever a mystery. However, the rise of new technology in the half-century since this murder may shed some light on what really happened back in 1948. It may even lead us to guess the unknown man's true identity. Up next, we'll explore modern theories on the identity of the Somerton man. Now back to the story. In 1978, Inside Story, a news show on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation network, aired a documentary on the unknown man. 
The host of the show, Stuart Littlemore, interviewed many of the key players involved in the case back in 1949. One of the people Littlemore interviewed was taxidermist Paul Lawson, who had made the plaster cast bust of the unknown man. Lawson assisted the police with the bust when it was to be viewed by people who might have known the man. Littlemore asked Lawson if anybody had recognized the unknown man at any of the viewings he was present for. It's at this point in the interview that Lawson became very tight-lipped on the subject and said, quote, People didn't say anything to me. It was directed to the cast between themselves or to the police, end quote. Littlemore pressed Lawson and said, you're a very cagey man. Despite Littlemore's continued attempts to persuade Lawson to explain himself, Lawson continued to deny knowing anything. Then Lawson said, you're on tender ground. The tone's aggressive. It's almost as if Lawson was indicating to Littlemore that the line of questioning was dangerous. Lawson kept dancing around Littlemore's questions on whether anybody had recognized the plaster cast of the unknown man. Finally, Littlemore asked flat out, you're not going to tell me? To which Lawson smiled and replied, nope. One of the other people Littlemore interviewed was Alfred Boxall. Boxall was the Australian Army officer assigned to the water transport company to whom Jessica Thompson had given a copy of the Rubaiyat during the war. Police had briefly thought Boxall was the unknown man until he was discovered alive at work. During the interview, Littlemore's questioning revealed that Alfred Boxall was actually a part of a military intelligence unit before he met Jessica Thompson. Like Lawson, Boxall started to become cagey with his answers. When Littlemore brought up the theory that the unknown man could have been a spy, Boxall took a very long pause and with a smirk said, that's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? Perhaps the spy theory wasn't as far-fetched as it was first believed. Other theories continued to abound through the years. In 2004, an expert in food preservation scrutinized the unknown man's last meal, a pasty. A pasty is a folded pastry case with seasoned meat and vegetables inside. In the 1940s, the expert contended that the salt preservative sulfur dioxide was overused in this particular pasty. At the time, sulfur dioxide was used as a bleaching agent by pasty bakers to keep their ingredients fresh. It's harmless in small amounts, but in certain individuals, asthmatics for example, it could be a problem. Large amounts could be especially dangerous, causing respiratory distress, cardiac arrest, and even death. Years later, the South Australia Food and Drugs Act limited how much sulfur dioxide could be used in food. So conceivably, the unknown man could have been the victim of a bad pasty. Was it possible that sulfur dioxide was the poison investigators were looking for back in 1949? Gary Feltus was a top murder investigator of the Adelaide Police Force before he retired in 2004. He'd heard of the case of the unknown man as a boy and decided to look into it as a hobby, despite warnings from colleagues that it would drive him mad. Feltis wrote a book about his investigation and actually spoke to Nurse Jessica Thompson just before she died in 2007. Feltis said, quote, She was evasive under questioning and went to great lengths to avoid attention. 
Every time this case had a big burst of publicity, she either disappeared on holiday or changed her address, end quote. It's hard to deny that after the Stuart Littlemore interviews of 1978 and Gary Feltes' interview of 2007, there was more to the story about the unknown man than everybody was letting on about. Derek Abbott is an engineering professor at the University of Adelaide whose skills include mathematics, cryptography, and forensics. He became fascinated by the mystery of the unknown man after reading a magazine article and has been investigating the case since 2007. Professor Abbott is the kind of person prone to obsessions, and an unsolved murder case seemed right up his alley. This was a man who, at age 15, traveled through London researching the history of lampposts and letterboxes as a hobby. Professor Abbott said, quote, I'm not so interested in how he died, but giving him his name back is the most important thing, end quote. At first, Abbott tackled the secret code found on the back of the Rubaiyat. Six years of searching led him to a dead end, much as it did the Adelaide police all those years ago. He had nothing new to offer that part of his story. Next, Professor Abbott turned his attention to nurse Jessica Thompson. Jessica and her husband, Prosper, had two children, a son, Robin Thompson, and a daughter, Kate Thompson. In 2013, 60 Minutes Australia interviewed Kate. Kate was convinced her mother was a Russian spy and that she may have had a hand in the murder of the unknown man. Kate said, quote, she had a dark side, a very strong dark side, end quote. Kate claimed that her mother knew who the unknown man was, saying, quote, she did know, and she told me that it is a mystery that is only known to a level higher than the police force, end quote. Such a statement granted further credence to the evasive interviews with Paul Lawson and Alfred Boxall in 1978. The entire spy theory hinged on the fact that the copy of the Rubaiyat held some kind of secret code on the back cover pertaining to a top-secret rocket base located in nearby Woomera. But Professor Abbott doesn't believe the spy theory has any merit and said, quote, I think this is a love story, not a spy one, one of jilted love, end quote. Reaching out to Jessica's relatives, Professor Abbott discovered that Jessica's son, Robin Thompson, had passed away in 2009. But he did track down Roma Egan, Robin's ex-wife, and their daughter, Rachel. Professor Abbott sent Roma Egan a picture of the unknown man and asked if she knew of anyone who resembled him. Roma replied that in fact she did. The unknown man resembled her ex-husband, Robin Thompson. Robin had two distinctive facial features, oddly shaped ears and two missing incisor teeth, leaving his canines directly next to his front teeth. Sound familiar? During the initial investigation in 1949, it was observed that the unknown man had a rare dental condition where he was missing both of his lateral incisors, resulting in his canine teeth being directly next to his front teeth. And then there was his unusual ear condition, where his upper ear hollow, called the simba, was much larger than his lower ear hollow, the cavum, an attribute that only occurs in roughly 1% of the population. Professor Abbott believes these similar genetic traits imply Robin Thompson was, in fact, the son of the unknown man. 
Providing more evidence to Professor Abbott's theory was his discovery that when Robin was a small boy, Jessica Thompson signed him up for dance lessons. Robin took to dance and eventually became a member of the Australian Ballet. Again, during the initial investigation in 1949, the autopsy notes that the unknown man had strong calf muscles, much like those you'd find on somebody who ran long distances, bicycled, or was a dancer. That's not a direct connection, but maybe Jessica's idea to sign her son up for dance was inspired by someone she knew, such as her son's actual father. Abbott convinced Roma Egan about his theory that her ex-husband, Robin Thompson, could be the son of the unknown man and enlisted her aid in trying to get the body exhumed to obtain a DNA sample. DNA preserved in the unknown man's bones could be compared to Rachel, Robin's daughter, and also to genealogy databases worldwide. If Robin Thompson was truly the unknown man's biological son, that would mean his and Roma's daughter, Rachel, would have inherited at least 25% of her genetic makeup from her grandfather, the unknown man. But Professor Abbott's request to have the body of the unknown man exhumed has been denied twice by the Attorney General of South Australia, who believes this matter has more to do with curiosity than anything criminal in nature. Abbott contacted Colleen Fitzpatrick, a forensic genealogist, for help. Fitzpatrick compared samples of Rachel and Roma's DNA to pinpoint the genome that came from Robin, then ran the results through massive DNA databases. Fitzpatrick discovered Rachel's paternal line traced back to the mid-Atlantic states of the U.S. There were even chromosomes that linked her to relatives of Thomas Jefferson. However, it's unclear if those came from her mother or her father. There were clues back in 1948 that pointed toward the unknown man being an American. His coat was stitching only found in the U.S., and the direction of the stripes on his tie keeping with the U.S. standard. But let's remember, all of this is predicated on the idea that Robin Thompson was actually the unknown man's son and Rachel his granddaughter. The possibility that the unknown man was related to Thomas Jefferson is just a theory, albeit an interesting one. Another theory looks at the fact that after the unknown man was buried in 1949, the police noticed that someone was leaving flowers on the grave. Later, people noticed pebbles piled on the gravesite, which was the way of marking a Jewish resting place. Author Carrie Greenwood's 2012 book, Tom Om Should, The Somerton Man Mystery, analyzed the mystery of the unknown man. She theorized that perhaps the unknown man was a smuggler transporting arms to the newly formed country of Israel. During the Arab-Israeli War, both the United States and Great Britain had imposed an arms embargo on both sides. In 1948, the unknown man's suitcase, found at the railway station, had a stenciling brush, which was used to mark cargo, a table knife and scissors, which could be used to cut and attach seals to boxes and crates. It was speculated that he could have been a ship's cargo master. Greenwood proposed somebody was thanking the unknown man for his contributions to the cause by placing pebbles on his grave. So the unknown man could have been a smuggler, a Cold War spy, a rightful father, or a distant ancestor of Thomas Jefferson. But all of these theories fail to consider one important detail, cause of death. 
If he were a smuggler, did a rival arms dealer take out the competition? If he were a spy, was he killed because of secrets he stole? If he were the true father of Robin Thompson, was he killed by a lover, now married to another man, intent on keeping the truth about her secret love child hush-hush? Or perhaps the explanation is simpler than all the fantastic narratives people have come up with over the years. Maybe the unknown man ate a bad pasty, had a severe allergic reaction, and died. With regards to the wave of immigrants flooding Australia in 1948, many had changed their names, taken new identities, wanting a fresh start. Perhaps the unknown man was one of these new arrivals, escaping war-torn Europe, hoping to start a new life. Even as recently as 2018, attempts are still being mounted to identify the unknown man. Professor Abbott is making a third attempt to have the unknown man exhumed to back up genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick's findings. Writer Amy Knight and doctor of forensic science Renee Blackie received permission to retrieve a hair sample embedded in the plaster cast of the unknown man made in 1949 in order to try a new trace DNA testing technique. In the course of their research, Renee said something very poignant, quote, very easily people have forgotten that here you have an unidentified man that's never been claimed by any family or friends, and that is really sad 70 years on, end quote. That's really what this story comes down to. A man buried in a grave with no name. Wouldn't it be nice if he could finally be identified, the mystery at last put to rest? It's our conclusion that Jessica Thompson, the nurse who lived in Adelaide, knew the true identity of the unknown man. Jessica's phone number being on the back of the Rubaiyat, her almost fainting at the sight of the bust of the unknown man, and her reluctance to divulge all she knew in later interviews point to her being the key to the mystery. Ex-lovers, partners in crime, spies, whatever it was, they were definitely in it together. If she didn't kill him, she knew who did. And she chose to keep his identity secret. The Somerton Man was someone who mattered to her. Until next time, Tamam Should. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Joseph C. Muscat and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.